Good What's morning, that? good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. And welcome to this month's Black Hat webcast, Mobility and Security, brought to you by Black Hat and United Business Media, LLC. I'm Darrington Forbes, and I'm your announcer today. We have just a few announcements before we begin. This webcast is designed to be interactive between you and the presenters. Please uh, submit your questions throughout. You can participate in the Q&A session by asking questions at any time during the presentation. Just type your question into the Ask a Question text area below the media player. Then click the Submit button. We will answer as many questions as time permits. You may enlarge the slide window at any time by clicking on the Enlarge Slide button located below the presentation window. The slides will advance automatically throughout the event. You can also download a copy of the presentation by clicking on the Download Slide button below the presentation window. At this time, we recommend you disable your pop-up blockers. If you are experiencing any technical problems, please visit our webcast help guide by clicking on the Help link below the video window. In addition, you can contact our Technical Support Helpline, which is also located in the webcast help guide. Now on to the presentation, Mobility and Security. Moderating today is Jeff Moss, Founder and Director of Black Hat. Hey, thanks, Tarrington. Hey, so I want to welcome everybody to our webcast number 10. Uh, we've done this every Thursday, every third Thursday of every month, and we're trying to make it a regular occurrence here at Black Hat. And so if you're interested in what we've done in the past, you can download past presentations uh, from blackhat.com. And so we're trying something new this time. Uh, we're going to try more of a roundtable format where I queue up questions to our panel of experts, and they take the question and discuss amongst themselves, and we try to either come to a consensus or come to the realization that there is no such solution and move on to the next topic. And really, it's going to be, the questions are going to be driven from you guys. Uh, just use that Q&A Q uh, question and answer tab at the top, submit stuff. We'll be constantly turning through there. I might take two or three questions, aggregate them, and then just submit them as one question to the panel, or I might pick out little bits. But really, after our sort of block and set uh, questions we have to start things off with run out, it's all going to be coming from you guys. So we'll see how this works out for the first time. And then if we get no questions and we run out of stuff, then you just get to listen to the speakers talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. That could be cool, too. Okay, so um, let's go ahead. I'll kick this off, introduce our panelists, and we'll talk about mobile security. And for definitional purposes, Mobile security is a pretty broad concept. I mean, it could be a computer in a car. It could be a handheld mobile phone. It could be pretty much anything, a netbook on a laptop, on an airplane, or just a really, you know, a WAN-enabled laptop or something. So part of it is definitionally confusing. Um, but just think of it in the broadest context, a mobile device that cause, uh, contains data under the control of a potentially untrusted third-party, you know, employee, because <laughs> you can't trust those employees. Okay, first up, I'm proud to introduce, we have Charlie Miller, who is a principal analyst and independent security, at uh, Independent Security Evaluators, and he's a reigning champ on the CanSec West Pwn-to-Own competition, routinely brooding OSX boxes in the sub-second. And then we have Vincenzo Izzo, who's a student at the Palencio de Milano, security consultant at Secure Network, and a reverse engineer for Zynamics, where our friend Halvar works. We have Alex Stamos, who is a founding partner of ISEC Partners. And we have Roberto Gassira and Roberto Piccarillo. I'm not going to mangle that last name. Uh, and uh, Cristofaro, 
are security researchers for the Mobile Security Lab, and they've spoken previously on hijacking mobile data connections at our most recent Black Hat Europe event. And finally, we have John Herring, who is the co-founder of Flexus Mobile Security. In their early incarnation, Flexus focused a lot of their attention on uh, Bluetooth security and has since branched out. So those are our experts, and I'm going to start the conversation. So there's uh, slides that should be kicking up. Let me see. There's the presenter, presenter's slides. Do you want to drive this thing, Darrington? Uh, sure. Uh, just as a, a reminder, uh, you can submit questions at any time throughout. Uh, if you Also, if you have a question for a particular speaker, uh, include the speaker's name so we can sort a little more easily. We've and we'll start with a mobile device overview. The, uh, and then once we go through the question and answer, we'll reserve a little bit of time at the end for uh, announcing the winner of our contest. We've selected a winner, but we're not going to tell you who it is until the end. All right. So here's some things going on with mobile devices in general. Um, first off, what makes a mobile device a mobile device? Are you guys going to agree with me that it has to contain some data and be controlled by an untrusted third party, or you guys want to try to redefine mobile device? Charlie, what do you think? <laughs> You're going to think on me first. Yeah, yeah, um, why not? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, you know, uh, some some sort of device. I don't know if it has to have data, but it's only interesting if it has data. And I don't know if it has to be in the hands of a third party that you don't care about. It could, you know, the thing I have in my hand is a mobile device, and uh, no one else has it but me. But I sure as hell don't want anyone to break into it. So uh, I don't know. Okay, so let me put it this way: Is it important that the mobile device have a, a multi-user operating system on it? No, I don't think so. Uh, uh, so, I mean, if, if you want to just uh, dive into sort of uh, mobile devices and, and uh, you know, what makes them different than, than say, you know, your desktop computer um, from a security perspective, I think. Um, so, so I think there's a couple things. One is that uh, it's the, the vendors lock down the mobile devices way more, and that's just sort of... Uh, you know, you're, when you sit down at your desktop, you have certain expectations. If I download a program and run it, it's going to work, even if, you know, it's something bad. It's, uh, you know, I have that ability to download stuff and run it. And on phones, people don't necessarily have that, or mobile devices don't necessarily have that capability, right? So, uh, you know, you might have to have something that's signed, or you might have to get it from a certain place, like, you know, an app store or something like that. So There's um, a whole there's, sort of EULA end-user licensing agreement wrapped up around the use of it. Right, so so I think people are sort of more accepting because they they haven't you know had these devices forever, so it, and they're more accepting of of locking them down. Where you know your desktop, there's people are like, hey man, I got to be able to do whatever I want. So uh, you have a sort of opportunity to put more security on these devices. But then the sort of drawback is then uh, sort of security companies can't really write software like uh, AV companies have have trouble writing software you know for antivirus and stuff because they don't really have access to the low level details. So you know, in, in Windows, if I download some sort of crazy driver and I have permission to install it, I can do that. But on your phone, you know, even if I really, really want to install some sort of, you know, low-level device driver thing, I can't because, you know, there's just not an API available for that. And so most, in my experience, most mobile phones now, unless you have a either a developer cert or sometimes even the the manufacturer cert, you can't install anything. Or if you can't install it, it has very limited privileges. 
Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, the examples that I know a lot about Android and iPhone. So, uh, and iPhone, no matter, you know, who you are, even if you get Apple to bless it, it still is going to live in a little sandbox and there's hardly anything you can do. And it certainly can't, uh, you know, monitor what other things are doing because as soon as you press a little home button, your program goes away. <laughs> and, uh, likewise on, on Android, you know, there's only certain things you can get and the whole security model is sort of based on your programs are running in little sandboxes and, uh, the security programs basically can't run in a sandbox, so they, you know, they can't monitor what the other programs are doing. And I know on uh, Symbian it's sort of the same way. Supposedly nothing gets installed unless it has a cert. That is true, although there's definitely been uh, instances of people being uh, taking advantage of um, the certifications in, in a way that enabled malware to propagate through. And it's rare, but it's definitely happened. Windows Mobile and Symbian are quite different in that in that respect, and those have been the platforms that malware, more malicious type of um, attacks have, have primarily taken place on up until now. Yeah, I saw the latest version of uh, Symbian supposedly restricts some of that, but then I saw the equivalent of a jailbreak app where somebody found a overflow in a stock application and you're able to trigger it and then load whatever you want it to load. And that's sort of, if you go online and look at the the pirate world, Apparently, that's how they're trading their Symbian wares. Yes. But once you do that, it's sort of like you've got a device that's wide open that anybody else can come along and take advantage of. Well, and and when we talk about certificates, this is where mobile security starts to get very complicated because you have um, lots of different models. Every single smartphone platform has different models, what they consider to be a signed application. Like the iPhone and Android, um, you have to sign the certificates, but those certificates are given out by the, the Android marketplace and the iPhone um, store, um, whereas like Windows Mobile and BlackBerry are kind of the more traditional, you have to go get a, a certificate from VeriSign. Um, and so we're starting to see uh, with the smartphone platforms kind of differentiate themselves from the feature phones and the idea that there's, there's no central CA that you, it's not quite a web of trust, but that CAs, that certificates are only for identifying who originally signed it, um, but of, of making an actual decision whether or not that's trusted is up to the user. Um, and so it, it, it's definitely a little different than the walled garden model that has been dominating smartphones for a long time. I mean, sorry, feature phones for a long time. And to define that feature phone, ironically, is the term that's used in the, the industry to mean dumb phones, right? It's a little insulting to say dumb phones. but So really it should be featureless phone. Featureless phone, yeah, basically. <laughs> the, the dumbness is but, the feature. But, but then the marketing people got a hold of it and it became a feature. Exactly. Okay, and so... so feature, right? So we're going to think of, uh, and now uh, abstract it differently from, say, a netbook that's enabled with, say, a WAN modem or something. Right, which a lot of them are unlocked, and you can load any operating system. Yes, and then I think the operating system is, is the you know the primary differentiator there and looking at smartphone operating systems as they may or may not make their way onto netbooks. That would be an interesting uh, thing to look at. So Well, so for a brief, a brief aside there, hasn't uh, somebody... Managed to cross-compile and get Android to work on a little netbook? Yes. Absolutely. There's a number of hobbyists out there, including uh, myself, who have been toying with uh, loading Android on netbooks. And I think it's fantastic. When you look at the use case for netbooks, I think it's quite different than the typical laptop. It's more about Internet accessibility, messaging, things that you would do on a smartphone that a bigger screen and a keyboard lend itself well to. So looking at how these smart operating systems might might translate over onto a netbook form factor, 
then I think in the context of mobile security, you know, you're truly talking about mobile security. Then you're talking about m- mobile security is very different, you know, than than desktop security, and that we have all these different protocols that you have to deal with, like SMS or WAP push, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, which are also on the desktop. But it it, it kind of there's a layer of complexity, and that it carries with it um, what what what's following from the smartphone platforms. So. Well, and also, like you point out, it's it's easy to restrict network access to a desktop in a corporate environment, but anybody can send you a text or an MSMS or an MMS or whatever. Yes. And your phone has to receive it. You also take your phone with you everywhere you go, which is unique. So uh, here's a question we got from the audience. Um, how important is the application signing requirement to mobile device security? Like if you were purchasing these things, would you want to have an enforceable framework for saying nothing gets executed unless it's signed? I, I think that's kind of silly. Um, I think the signatures can have a usefulness, but the fact that basically this phone is full of people that make their living breaking into mobile phones, and all of us own legitimate $500 VeriSign code signing certificates, um, you know, kind of puts a lie to the idea that the, the, the certificate authority model means anything. Um, it, you know, I think in the iPhone and Android, the fact that it's tied to this is the person that signed up and maybe we have their credit card number in both of those situations. You know, you have to uh, put in the credit card number to verify who you are before you upload. When you when you enter their developer, uh, you know, you get their SDKs, you enter their developer program. You know, has a, a lot more, um, and it's not even that much, but a, a lot more meaning than just somebody was able to get a, a CA cert. So I think it's about user choice. Um, not not that users always but want to make those choices, but but, but, but couldn't, couldn't say General Electric say we're going to deploy 500 phones and we only want apps to run that have been signed by General Electric or the manufacturer? Would right. that be possible? Oh uh, yeah, well there's there's a couple of different ways you can configure depending on what kind of phone it is. Like you can tell your Blackberries through a, a Blackberry Enterprise server only allow things signed by a certain CA. Um, you can even do that with feature phones using things like OMA DM, OMA Device Management. John can probably speak to that. All right. So in that situation, it doesn't matter if you've got a $500 code signing insert because you're not signed by the right CA. Right. And, and that's how they've enforced their, uh, you know, the, the feature phones have always shipped with limited CAs. CAs controlled only by the networks, for example, so that you, you can't install somebody else's um, wave files for ringtones that you have to pay a buck per ringtone. And that's partially how they're enforced it is through the CA model. Uh, okay. So... Um, Christopher Moon here. Um, yes, probably application signing has more has more to do with the business model rather than security. I mean, uh, probably in many situations, um, uh, users uh, just want to install their, their application, but uh, on the other side, a lot of businesses that uh, really run on top of these uh, application signing stuff. Okay, so... We're going to say that uh, signing is a nice feature, but it's, it's not necessarily a security requirement. You guys agree with that? <clears throat> Partially. I mean, uh, by signing stuff, you uh, sort of prevent malware from spreading with, uh, like, really easily. So, um, yeah, if, even if uh, signing... Uh, CA or wherever uh, have some problems, I still think that code signing is something really, really useful. And okay. I think it'll be quite interesting to see, you know, there's kind of the 
there's Symbian and there's Windows Mobile who are kind of taking the, the signing route, and then you look at something like Android, which is likely doing something very different. So I think given the, the variety of mobile operating systems, we'll, we'll kind of see how they pan out, and there's the, the multiple um, different components that, that you have to think about, which is security, but also, more importantly, the security is a secondary to users using applications and developers creating applications. So how this all evolves will be interesting over time, and I think in the next year or two we'll really see you know, which works better and which doesn't. There may not be a clear answer to that question. Somebody from the audience uh, points out that digital signing is primarily in place to ensure that application comes from a trusted source and has not been modified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you look at the example, and um, I have to grab my research, but there's been examples of of people actually being able to sign applications maliciously through Symbian, and it's been very rare. But but it absolutely has happened. So although it's an edge case, I, I don't think it's an absolute. This is the problem with one of the problems with mobile security defining it is there is a lot of people who think that they are the customer of the security of whatever assurances that are being made by the phone, right? The carrier, they think that they're the customer of security. The user thinks that they're being protected. Um, sometimes the OEM feels they're being protected. App um, developers expect that they to be protected with kind of DRM-like or forward locking. And so, yes, uh, signing with a CA can, can meet some security assertions, but the, I think the problem is whose security assertions, especially, you know, it, it's traditionally been used to help the carrier's business model. Um, the question is whether or not we can use that same model to protect users against malware um, really comes down to whether or not you're going to allow the platform to be open uh, and have lots of apps come, come from lots of places or if you're, it's going to have something like a single app store like the iPhone. So speaking of threats, what are we defending against here? Um, one of the audience members, uh, Gregory, asks, are there any yet known mass-spreading malware that's been targeted at a mobile phone or mobile device, or have there been any successful in the past? The majority of malware has been primarily on Symbian up until now, and, the, you know, Symbian, it's been kind of a count-and-mouse battle. If you look at Symbian Series uh, 60, version 2, version 3, and as it's evolved, they've kind of changed their trust and security models to deal with that. But most all of the viruses we've seen in malware, at least in my experience, has been primarily on Symbian. There's been a handful on Windows Mobile. At the end of last year, the first uh, polymorphic companion um, virus or piece of malware for Windows Mobile uh, existed. But most of it, especially on Windows Mobile, has been a, a lot more simple and kind of proof of concept. I think that in terms of kind of the monetary gain, that what we typically see on the desktop or big windows is happening more on Symbian. And then on the other side of things, I think the bigger threat that's looming is, is targeted attack. And I think many people could probably speak specifically to that um, over protocols like SMS or WAP push. I know Charlie knows quite a bit about that. I will be covering the, the attack cases in a little bit. But well, so. Uh yeah, an interesting thing about uh, Symbian is that since they changed the file format to avoid uh, the spreading malware, they pretty much succeeded in doing this because as far as I know, there's just one sample of malware for the new file format. So that, that I think they did a pretty good job for what it's worth. Are you talking on Symbian? Yep. Yeah, the only way, you, it's almost like... Uh, you have to hit accept on so many pop-up windows to get anything installed now. I don't. I think you have you have to be pretty cognizant of what you're doing. And that's where usability comes into play, right? If you if we have a huge amount of complexity, it it really obscures users' decisions, and they become 
blind to whatever they're clicking on, which becomes a problem, especially as phishing finds its way onto mobile devices. So, But here's a question um, back on the whole virus front. This is from Aaron. He says, uh, mobile PDA virus have been an active topic since about 2000, with the introduction of some of the first malware to be introduced was for the Palm OS. Um, are they still a serious threat when PDAs have the capability to be restored via a simple data sync? Uh, while few malware do exist, say, in Palm, Windows Mobile, and Symbian, uh, can one really justify antivirus on a mobile platform? In our business, this question comes up quite often. I think it matters, you know, how important your data is to you. So, yeah, it's great to, to be able to restore your phone, but if, you know, meanwhile, all your data has been shipped off to China, uh, then it doesn't doesn't help you, right? So um, I think the only thing that, you know, you haven't seen a lot of viruses from mobile phones and you haven't seen a lot of attacks against mobile phones. And I think that that, that doesn't necessarily reflect that they're more secure than typical PCs or servers or anything. It's just that, uh, you know, people haven't focused on them yet. And uh, slowly, slowly, people, researchers are looking at it and, you know, bad guys will be right behind us, I think. So I think... Uh, there's nothing inherently more secure about these devices. It's just that, you know, besides the fact that there's a lot of different ones, and so it's sort of hard to, for, for you to focus on, on uh, you know, one particular device. And, uh, but, you know, as, as more and more, you know, a few operating systems and phones take over the market, you're going to see more of it. And, uh, you know, once a few big things happen, then even more people get it. And so I think it's going to happen, you know, pretty soon. And the two of the biggest drivers of a lot of what Charlie just identified, in my opinion, are high-speed connectivity, you know, 3G connections on mobile devices, and the, the downloading of applications. And if you look at what's happened in the past, you know, with uh, the shareware movement on PCs, and then as cable modems, DSL, high-speed connectivity became more popular. You started to see a lot of attacks coincide with that. And you know, now that people actually are downloading applications, look at their mobile devices as as their most personal computer. And are accessing the the internet and um, doing advanced functionality. That, that's that's going to be a huge contributor. The um, if you had to give, be given a choice between uh, antivirus app on your mobile phone or a personal style firewall on your mobile phone, which do you think would be more useful? Because as you mentioned with 3G connections, uh, I'm not sure. Sometimes you're routable, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're in a hot spot, sometimes you're not. Uh, how important is it to have uh, basic firewall rules on these devices, or are they sort of by design uh, not listening on unnecessary ports? I think it depends on the type of network you're on, as you identified, right? If you're accessing just the Internet through a Wi-Fi hotspot and open uh, a hotspot, then, then the gloves are off. I think that there's also certain mobile networks that are basically accessible from the outside, which also create their own host of problems. And I don't think many people are aware of how much goes on in the background on these more open networks. So in terms of value, it really depends on the use case. I think that if you're on a different operating system where there's been more malware, more attacks, and you're downloading applications constantly, especially from untrusted sources on the web, well, that's one thing. If you're, you know, constantly accessing networks and using more internet connectivity, maybe you travel. You're on different mobile networks, then then that would be another and kind of leads well, to the firewall side of things. I, I don't think most of these phones, most apps do not open listening ports. I mean, depending on what network you're on, you're on a private IP or a public IP with like your 3G connection. But it, what's more concerning for the phones is that there's lots of pool of content, right? People, the phones that support background services, a lot of people have connected services. They'll pull in 
right on RSS feeds, only down web services. Obviously, people are using their browsers, which is how Charlie's nuked a bunch of these phones uh, for phone to own. Um, I think what's going to be more interesting is that, um, like, the iPhone and Android both have background paging services that are where, you know, the phones connect up to centralized services, but then paging messages can come down. Um, and the iPhone at least has announced that they're going to have an open API that you can do what's called background push notifications. And so, you know, the, the, the phones are creating attack surfaces on the phone that are exposed through their own networks and their own paging services that theoretically allow arbitrary information and that you can then notify the apps on each of the phone instead of sending SMS messages. And it should be interesting to see if people want to start to have some kind of firewall functionality there um, or if people start to have you know, overflows and other kind of flaws from that attack surface. Since that's always on, um, you can route to that using somebody's like email address. Um, and that's going to be a standard part of the phone um, and not really dependent on finding the person's IP address. Um, in our experience, uh, well, um, we discovered some flaws uh, exactly uh, by attacking some open ports on the devices. Um, I mean, uh, these open ports often are not re re related to any application running. For example, you can have also the WAPUSH port. That is, uh, sometimes it's open, or we have the VCAD or port that is open. Well, that can be an avenue of attack, and the user cannot uh, usually be aware of these uh, open ports. So uh, perhaps in uh, some situations, uh, um, uh, a firewall could be even uh, more needed than uh, also an antivirus, because also these open ports are open on uh, feature phones rather than on complex uh, um, complex uh, operating systems. Uh, what what uh, what, uh, what I also would like to add is that. Uh, um, I mean, in our experience, we also found that some operators are providing public IP addresses uh, to to their customers without uh, putting any firewall in the middle. So, I, I mean, in, in some situation, um, using a firewall on a device could be more helpful. I mean, but rather than an antivirus. That was my next question: was some networks allow you to be routable, directly accessible; other ones sort of nat you with. Uh, not allowing setup connections into the, the network, and, and others, uh, if you get on the network, you can scan within, say, the, the network and find other mobile devices. So all it takes is you to tether your mobile phone to your, you know, attack tools, and then you scan for all the local phone users. So it, it seems a lot of it's dependent based on the, the network. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what, uh, what the phone team trying to score at the moment. Um, I mean, a lot of operators are uh, um, providing the, the users for with public IP addresses. They're routable and they're also accessible outside of the Internet. This is uh, one situation. The other situation is that they are providing a private IP address. But, well, in these cases, uh, you, you can often reach, uh, the, reach them with a, with a inner mean, and then you can trigger attacks inside the network. For example, we, um, we showed how it is possible to perform data extrusions in some cases by using simple SMS or uh, provisioning attack. Well, just an example. We think that this is the tip of the iceberg, but that's, that's surely an interesting uh, point, of course. And we're going to start covering attacks in just a moment here. Um, so first off, uh, we're going to switch topics a little bit. One thing, across all mobile devices, whether we call it a feature phone or non-feature phone or even a netbook, um, 
one thing is these devices are mobile, and they're going to get lost or stolen uh, or maybe even tampered with when you leave them behind. What are some of the strategies you guys would, would suggest or you've even investigated for preventing tampering or uh, modification or uh, to not care about if your device is stolen, like full device encryption, container encryption on, say, a memory stick? Um, one person was saying that they configured their Exchange server to only store all the mail on the Exchange server, and then you basically IMAPed in and picked up the mail so there was no mail really sitting on the device. What are some of the strategies? Let's... Uh, I don't know who we're gonna who we're gonna pick on this time. That's uh, Alex. Why don't you start it off and then we'll move on? Can, can you repeat the beginning of that question? It was about nine minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was a nine minute question. For mail protection for data protection. Well, it was more about these devices can be stolen or tampered with. Um, so how do you prevent that? Do you do yeah. a full device encryption? Are there strategies to minimize the data loss? It, it, this is a really really hard problem on mobiles. Um, like you said, they get stolen. It has to be an order of magnitude more than laptops. Um, one of my business partners here, we're not going to let him have a smartphone for another six months. He's on, he's on probation right now. Um, <laughs> the number he leaves in the back of Alaska Airlines seat pockets. So, um, but the, the problem here is also you're talking about very cheap devices. Um, that you know, One of the cool things about mobile is we go back to people have to actually program efficiently when you talk about three, 400 megahertz uh, ARM processors instead of gigahertz and gigahertz depending uh, of core twos. So, you know, while full disencryption on a, on a full machine on a real laptop is almost negligible, there are real battery uh, and uh, performance impacts on mobile devices when you, you, when you encrypt very large amounts of data. Um, and then there's, uh, I think a lot of people overlook the fact that there's legal requirements on these devices. The ones that have, if, if you have a phone and it has voice, and this doesn't apply to netbooks, but if you have a phone that has voice and it's FCC regulated, you have to, whenever the phone is turned on, you have to be able to make an emergency call, right? And so... Um, you can't really have the kind of um, uh, flows uh, that people have when they have BitLocker or any kind of TrueCrypt or PGP whole disk encryption um, where you lock the entire phone down. These devices have to be able to run in some kind of minimal mode uh, without uh, somebody knowing a password, without it being able to call up to a centralized server. Um, and so designing data protection on them is very, very difficult. And for the most part, most of the phones punt on this. The most of them have not very well encrypted local data if you pull down the Flash device, you'll find totally unencrypted databases um, on the Flash, and you'll be able to read all the information on them, uh, which is unfortunate, but it's, it's not something that has improved very much over the last couple of years. Now, I uh, was talking with some of the security engineers over at uh, RIM, uh, BlackBerry, yesterday, trying to get a handle on some of this, and, and their, their comment is, if you don't have a password on your BlackBerry, it's you basically have no security. But the second you enable a password on your BlackBerry device, that unlocks a whole host of their security features. And some of it can get pretty ridiculous, you know, like what you're mentioning, fully encrypted data right. storage, memory storage, external memory storage. Uh, you know, it, it can get pretty crazy with they, BlackBerry. They support smart cards. They yeah. have hardware support because, you know, they own uh, Certicom, so they have hardware acceleration. Now, BlackBerry is by far the best at this. And yeah, and on my on my Nokia, the only thing I can think of uh, doing is I can encrypt my external memory device, so my micro SD card, and that's really the one I care about because if somebody's clever, they can just come up and pop that out of my phone, and it might take me a while to realize it's gone. In in the other part of the SD cards is they're all formatted with with MS FAT, which has no access controls. So something people don't realize is any phone that has an SD card in it, that data is readable by any application running on the phone. So you, you can't really have um, the isolation, data isolation stuff running on it unless you do profile encryption or directory encryption or something like that. But the SD cards are very scary, for sure. 
Uh, yeah, I hadn't contemplated that. I figured what they were doing is they're preventing access control by saying this application just can't read from, you know, device three or something. And, and that, that's possible, right? And, and like Android, there's permission and stuff. But um, once you allow somebody to read and write to the SD card, which lots of apps want to for legitimate reasons, they, they don't have any access control built into them. And, and like you said, they're easily lost. I mean, the, the micro SD cards, you could very easily swallow one and not even notice it. I mean, they're so, ridiculously tiny. So uh, let's go around the panel and hear their, uh, their quick opinion. What do you guys do to uh, prevent or minimize data loss if your device gets stolen? I already mentioned I uh, encrypt on my external SD, and I use a password on my device, and I, I back it up regularly. But that's about the extent of what I can do. Uh, Charlie? Uh, what do you, what do, you do with your iPhone? iPhone? Uh, nothing. I don't even lock it. So. If you want to steal my phone and get all my data, just take it out of my pocket. And uh, so you, you just your strategy is to minimize the sensitive data you keep on your iPhone, so if it goes missing, you don't care. Uh, my strategy is to have such big biceps that no one will mess with me. <laughs> okay, Vincenzo? Uh, pretty much the same as Charlie. Like, I <clears throat> I don't have any kind of sensitive information of my phone. Uh, well, I lock it, but nothing more. Okay, Alex? Um, I, I have some sensitive data on my phone, and I'm uh, trying to work with the people that write that app to add encryption. <laughs> Uh, okay, but, so you but right have... now I'm pretty on. Un... This is great role advertising. Please steal our phones to get our corporate mail. But for me, for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty unprotected right now. So you would your your selection or your choice would be if you're using trusted apps, make sure the app itself handles the security. Maybe don't count on the phone. Right, so... and, and that's a possibility for the open applications. You know, most of the smartphone platforms have real crypto APIs at least, even if they want to do protection for you. So they theoretically can build some of that in. Most of them don't, but it would be nice to see them to start to take that responsibility. Does anybody here use uh, PGP for mobile devices? I used to, but I, I don't have a current license. Nope. Okay, John, what do you do? Uh, obviously lock my device down with the password um, encryption on any external storage, so my SD card, for example, and then I have capabilities, obviously, to remotely kill the device and uh, wipe it out or hard reset it if, it if it's out of my control. So. so you use that to send the, SM, the explode me SMS message? No, I, I have an application that's actually um, like an administrator application from a, from the web that enables me to uh, deal with mobile devices in a cross-platform fashion. So I can actually wipe out my Windows mobile device, my iPhone, or a um, Symbian device all from a single application over the web. And that's a third-party app? Yes. Do you want to mention the name of it? It's Flexilis Mobile Security. Ah, uh, it's your own. Yes. Ah, okay. You had to beg him to, to mention his own app. I, see, I didn't realize that. I was expecting him to mention something else. Anybody else want to jump in on that one? Or does everybody just do one of these? Nothing unique. I'm supposed to be using the BlackBerry, and people who are using Blackberries and using them correctly are usually in reasonably good shape here. Yeah, that was my impression after talking to the security engineers. Yeah. Well, it... In, the, one of the problems here is that if BlackBerry has so many different levels of configuration that you have to make sure that you're doing it correctly. But they are one of the only devices that use an initial password to then derive a key to decrypt stuff. And then, um, the, you know, stuff is encrypted by default even if you're not using the PIN password. It's just kind of obfuscated because you don't have a, a password protecting them. But it, it is by far still the, the, the leader in the space, which is probably why they're still so dominant on the enterprise side. And, uh, and then so let's just do a quick detour on the corporate email. Um, 
what do you guys think of the policy versus uh, pushing all the email down to the device versus sort of an IMAP uh, model of you only get to read it while you're connected to the network, but you don't get to keep it stored on your device? I mean, that seems like a total hassle, but it also seems like from a security administration standpoint, easier. I think that's a, it, it's a completely on a case-by-case basis, right? So I'm in, I'm in San Francisco today. I, as I was coming from Oakland, I was under, you know, underwater on the bar going uh, between Oakland and San Francisco. I needed access to things on my device. So it was important for me to have access to various components of my email as I was reading, sitting on the, on the, the subway. But, you know, there's other, other instances where that would not make sense, especially for someone in a government capacity or someone with extremely sensitive data on their device, which I try and separate, especially with respect to uh, in email communications. So I how, it's, it's a, on an individual basis, that decision needs to be made, in my opinion. How many people lock their SIM card? Because it seems like it's a security feature that a lot of providers, uh, carriers offer, but they're never, it's not enabled. So, for example, I get a new SIM card to enable 3G on my, on my phone. Uh, I go in and I try to use Nokia Security Manager. I try to set my uh, PIN secure and my PIN one, my PIN two password, and I immediately lock my phone. So then I have to call up AT&T, give them my uh, SIM number, and then they give me the unlock code, and then I get to set whatever PIN password I want on my SIM. But once I can do that, then I actually have some more security on my device. It doesn't seem to be by default that they allow you to. And that prevents people from, say, stealing the SIM card out of my WAN modem on my laptop or, you know, it's mostly a fraud prevention technique. I don't know if it's a data privacy prevention. I, I, I think for the most part it's not a data privacy because um, most of these OSs are supporting, are at least trying or planning on supporting both CDMA and GSM. And so, the you know, moving between 3GPP and 3GPP2, the security precautions you can get out of the hardware is a lot different. So, yeah, I mean, blocking your SIM card, you know, may be great from a theft of service, but most people have stuff more valuable on their phone than their forty nine ninety nine a month plan, right? Right, and nowadays you have to go through an additional step to get uh, get permission to dial internationally or get pre-approved to dial internationally. So even if they steal your SIM card, it's not like they're going to call Lithuania for all day long. Right. It's probably great if you have kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got some questions coming in from the audience. Comment, is there, are there utilities for encryption of memory cards at the disk level, not the file level? By default, it's FAT16 or 32, but Windows Mobile 6.1 has inbuilt encryption, securing the memory card uh, via uh, some strong cryptography. So there's disk level versus file level. I'm not sure what, uh, what Symbian uses. All I know is you can click a box that says secure. And I know if you take the memory card out and put it in another device, it's unreadable, but I have no idea what the secure checkbox is doing. Right. With Windows Mobile, I'm not sure how it's implemented. I know they've had EFS in the past, and maybe this is now they're doing the entire format. But Windows Mobile doesn't um, unlock their DPAPI store using a password or anything. So it, it, it does protect against you maybe losing the, the SD card irrespective of the device itself. Um, but that's different than um, being protected against losing the entire phone which I, I, I'm not sure that actually helps you out. And uh, how feasible, here's another question from uh, Rachel, how feasible are malware attacks uh, that are targeted at getting a user's physical coordinates on a mobile phone uh, that takes advantage of the, the QPS or, or, or with QPS devices? And I'm going to expand that to 
uh, sort of geolocation information, whether it's uh, cell tower triangulation or using the phone's built-in GPS? Well, I guess it depends on the on the type of smartphone if they export any kind of API for doing this. So it it really depends. And besides, I think that this more or less a targeted attack, not like malware. I mean, a malware author doesn't need to know where all these devices are. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, for example, I'm pretty sure that iPhone uh, exports some some API to, to deal with the GPS, but I'm not sure about other devices. So. Now, is that accessible, though, through a web browser? Would it be possible to have you browse to a malicious site and then have the site basically query through your browser, your location? Ooh. Does anybody know? Matters on whatever the sandbox rules are for, for Safari in that case, and mobile Safari. I don't know what they are. The no, only reason I'm thinking that is uh, if people want to geotag where they took their picture or where they're geocaching or, or mark something on, uh, you know, Google Maps or something. And so I'm thinking, well, they have to export that GPS data somehow. Yeah, there's a thing. The W3C has a thing called the Geolocation API, which there's a uh, – uh, it's still a draft standard, but that exposes GPS information through um, – through JavaScript, so you can ask the browser through JavaScript, what's my GPS coordinates, um, which is a lot of fun because it means cross-site scripting can turn into not just stealing your cookie but finding out where you are physically. Um, but I'm not sure, I don't think any of the production phones, smartphones right now support um, that API in their current browser. I, I don't know what will happen with iPhone 3. Oh, that sounds pretty exciting. I mean, there's really cool consumer things you can do with that, but there's also really scary privacy things that are going to happen. Extremely like scary. Yeah, I mean, but the cool things like you can have a web map like Google Maps work without a thick client, but there's no – one of the problems here with the W3C is they don't think about, you know, at least when I looked at this spec a couple months ago, the security section said this needs to be written, and um, there's no real standard for how are we going to prompt the user, how are we going to have user opt-in and such. So – um, for example, this, this functionality is available through Google Gears, but Gears makes you go through these hoops to, to opt in and whitelist um, sites. It'll be interesting to see if mobile browsers, you know, if some of them just let people read that information, if it'll be based upon URL, if it'll be based upon if it's over HTTPS or not. Um, there's no real standard there, so it's going to be on an ad hoc basis for different browser manufacturers. And uh, speaking of browsers, which, uh, which browsers do you guys prefer? for mobile devices. Uh, one of the questions from Patrick is, are there any mobile browsers with enough JavaScript and DOM support that they're more at risk to uh, CSRF and XSS attacks? And let's broaden that out just to uh, browsers in general on mobile devices. Anybody have an opinion? I know uh, Opera, or Embedded Opera, seems to be a very popular uh, white-labeled browser on a lot of phones. They had, last time I looked at it, something like 40% of the market. So we saw this kind of support also on some uh, quite uh, on some uh, quite simple browsers on feature phones. I mean, uh, this uh, support of JavaScript attacks and the possibility for CSRF on XSS uh, attacks uh, is possible also on free uh, on feature phones. So it does not really, I guess, depends on the kind of browsers, but we we saw the support for JavaScript uh, on really simple phones. Anybody else? Uh, if you had to pick your uh, Safari over your Opera browser, or I don't even know what does BlackBerry use for a browser. Well, uh, Safari is 
Mm-hmm. As the support for JavaScript and it's quite mobile Safari is quite huge. So yeah, there might be some rooms for uh, XSS or whatever kind of web app attack. I guess uh, I don't know about uh, BlackBerry actually. But. BlackBerry by default has this very limited kind of web style browser, um, and then you can add different browsers. And Google Opera Mini works on the BlackBerry. The funny thing about Opera Mini, which is different than the, the big Opera. Um, is that it's all of it is kind of man in the middle by Opera with they have servers in the middle that like down down sample the JPEGs and, and simplify the HTML and stuff. So that's one of the funny things on some of the uh, these browsers is you got to make sure that your browser is actually if you care about security connecting up to the sites directly and that there's not a third party between you and the sites rewriting all of your traffic. And so yeah. Opera Mini is right out. I would. I think it's fine for looking at Google News and getting stock quotes. I, I wouldn't go to your bank account with Opera Mini for sure. The the nice combination of uh, uh, I mean of networks uh, in the case of in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the mobile environment. Well, that could uh, pretty much open some uh, some avenues uh, for for attacks in, uh, in this kind of case. I mean, um, when you are uh, uh, in a private addressing uh, with your browser, well, you you could also uh, as an external attacker, by using JavaScript, you would target the local network. But there could be uh, also possibility in uh, in some uh, mobile environment, depending on how the configuration is uh, is performed. I guess that this road is quite uh, unexplored at this moment, but this could uh, open some uh, uh, nice spots for uh, investigation. At least we are um, trying to understand if this is possible. On, uh, I, I mean, uh, such a scenario is possible to the mobile environment. Uh, would like to hear an opinion on this, of course, from you. Patrick uh, asked, "What was the name of that GPS W3C API again?" Yeah, it's the W3C Geolocation API, and they have added the security section, um, in which they say the people pulling down your data should definitely tell you about it. So that's very nice of them. <laughs> um, here's a political question. With Obama's love of the BlackBerry so widely publicized, does anyone know what was done with his phone to secure it? And all I can say is that there's there's pictures of him with the Secretary Edge, which is a, a classified a, a phone designed with a, two sides, a secure and unsecure side, and then he also has his BlackBerry. And it was my understanding that the Blackberries is used for personal things and the Secretary Edge is used for government things. Um, but when talking to the Blackberry security engineers the other day, they claim that they get so much scrutiny for, from so many intelligence agencies because a lot of uh, different people's governments' employees use the Blackberry that they're constantly under a security review. And... Uh, and that's why their policy configuration is just so ridiculous. I mean, there's there seems to be more policy configuration on a BlackBerry than all the other phones combined. So I wouldn't be surprised surprised if he could really lock down that BlackBerry. But uh, as far as I know, government business is done on that Sectera Edge. Remember that RIM is Canadian, so I'm not sure they can even make a phone that you can take into a skiff or something. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so... Um, what are we going to go for? Another question here. Uh, should the industry pressure handset makers like Apple to open security APIs for security software to provide protection? And do you think 
I think that there's this movement uh, maybe in response to compete against the iPhone, but it seems like Open Symbian, that's trying to open up. Android's trying to open up. It seems like there's this race to open up in an attempt to defend against the onslaught of Apple. Yeah, I think it's very relevant whether we want to pressure them or not. They're, you know, Until it makes sense for them to make money, they're not going to do it. So As long as people keep buying iPhones and, and there's no way you can buy antivirus for it, then they're happy to keep taking your money. I think their business model is based on the fact that it's shiny and fun, and not really—it's uh, not really about enterprise manageability. It's a, their, their, their their go-to-market strategy for the enterprise is that you know a corporate VP will bring the BlackBerry because it's cute and he can play fun game, or the the iPhone because he can play fun games on it, and then force the IT department to let them do Exchange Active Sync. Um, I'm not sure they they actually care if they about going to corporate IT people and convincing them that they can compete with the BlackBerry. I mean, it is a serious problem, though. I mean, the fact that, you know, security companies can't write security apps for these devices so that, you know, I already mentioned I don't really do any security on my phone, but, you know, if I wanted to, I should have that option, and, you know, really, it's not there right now. So, I mean, that's sort of a shame, but I don't think there's really anything we can do until I'm not by the phone. Okay, well, we're, we've got about 10 minutes or so more to go, and so I want to quickly switch topics here. And, uh, and geek out a little bit. So you guys are all security researchers, and you're all poking around at these devices, whatever device it may be. Uh, how do you do it? What, do you, what kind of applications do you use for, say, fuzzing or assessing uh, a phone? Or let's say somebody in the audience is at a, at a company, and uh, they want to evaluate an application that they want to load on their Blackberries or on their iPhones or deploy. Um, what, what might they do? What tools might they use to do an application review? So uh, let's just, uh, since you're, you've got huge biceps and a killer stare, Charlie, uh, when, you're, when you're finding your next uh, O-Day against Safari, what kind of tools are you using? Uh, great question. So um, basically, uh, I, my background is uh, you know, more like computer security and not, not uh, mobile security. And so what I try to do is set up my mobile device as much like a computer as I can and then try to use all the tools I already know how to use. So in an iPhone case, you know, you can jailbreak it and then, you know, you SSH in and then all of a sudden you have a shell and you can install Python on it or whatever crazy thing you want to do. Um, but, but basically, um, the iPhone has, has a crash reporter that you can send test cases at it and watch the crash reporter and it'll tell you when, when something crashes. Um, likewise, on Android, uh, you can do the same thing. You can, you can do a lot more work, but eventually you can get a shell and then it has a log that will tell you when things crash. And so, I mean, basically all you need to fuzz something is uh, you know, a way to send it test cases, a way to monitor when something's gone wrong. And uh, at least on those two devices, which is who I've worked with, um, the, the, the phone itself, if you know where to look, will give you uh, a log to tell you when things have gone wrong. And so your job really is to make sure you can generate test cases, figure out uh, you know, what sort of input it takes. And, and as a plug, my Black Hat talk is all about that. So uh, one of them is about um, how to fuzz us and that. So basically for a few mobile devices, uh, we show how you can inject SMS into it, and you know, that's one of the things you got to do. And the other thing is you have to monitor the application, so we show how to do that too. And uh, Charlie, to that point, I think one of the challenging components of fuzzing mobile devices is dealing with actually interfacing with the mobile devices. So if you're you're doing you know accessing or uh, fuzzing SMS, for example, or, or Bluetooth, you know, and dealing with state transitions, right? It's 
because the radio dying is one thing, and a lot of fuzzers that are less intelligent um, can signal that as you know possibly some kind of security issue. When in fact it was just um, the, you know the radio going down or some kind of error with a state transition. So that's one of the unique challenges, especially with wireless protocols. Right. Not, not to mention, like if you want to fuzz, uh, you know, Bluetooth or or you know really do. Uh, you know, the SMS or MMS or something like, you might want to have to have to buy like some sort of hardware that's going to send, you know, a signal like you're the carrier. And so, like I said, I don't want to mess with that. And so one of the things we did was made sure that uh, we basically get the, the SMS message into the software and so we never actually have to do anything over the air. So I want to make it as much like software and, and less like mobile phones and hardware, which I don't really get. The uh, Just give us a quick overview, John, and then we'll get back to the tools. On Bluetooth security, what's the state of it? It used to be that anybody that had Bluetooth turned on, people would be snarfing your address books and contact lists and everything, and I haven't heard that for quite a while. Have these devices pretty much gotten it sorted out by now? Well, I think that Bluetooth itself has had some problems, but it has it, not been the root of the cause. It's been the implementation by specific device manufacturers, which has been the big problem. And I don't think it's gotten much better, to be honest with you. I think that there are other attacks which are becoming more interesting, and more accessible SMS is a lot more powerful just given the, the distributed nature and you don't have to be within uh, range and although Bluetooth range, you know, the, the argument of a 10 meters or 100 meters being a problem, you know, we showed that that wasn't a problem. I still think that Bluetooth is going to be something that, that's important to take security seriously and especially at the uh, OEM level when implementing a, a Bluetooth driver, for example. And we're, we're you know, we've got a, our own set of fuzzing tools that we've been using, and we've uh, had no shortage of finding issues in any of the protocols, Bluetooth included. So when you're fuzzing Bluetooth, what, what tools are you using? Just homebrew? We're actually using a uh, fuzzing framework we call the Sniper Framework in-house, and we're actually going to be open sourcing it at Black Hat USA this year in our talk. So are you, do any of you guys use emulators, and you basically emulate a whole Windows mobile device on your desktop, or are you, for the most part, working directly with devices? We typically work directly with devices. We've got uh, we've got some experimentation in house to to do a, we basically distribute um, testing. But there's a whole host of of issues that come with uh, using emulators. They're quirky. Anybody else? So um, for it's like the Android emulator is really good because it actually emulates the hardware, um, at least uh, some of the hardware, the, the processor at least. And so like when I found the original. Uh, or when I wrote the original Android exploit, I wrote it on the emulator, and when the phone showed up, it worked on the phone. So that's that's a really good emulator. Although, like for SMS, it's, it's not so good. But um, but by comparison, the iPhone emulator is actually still runs everything on the X86 chip on your on your computer. So it's not a very good emulator. It's it's very very lightweight. Doesn't have all the applications, and so you really can't do a whole lot there. So it sort of depends on the emulator, I think. Okay, so emulators. Uh, if you were tasked with doing a security review of a, of a device or an application, if you found a bug through using the emulator, you'd still have to verify it on the device. Well, it matters. For applications that are not doing anything to the OS, generally the emulator should be fine. And there's usually some fuzzy part, usually uh, somewhere at the device driver level, where the emulators get um, a lot different. And, and like Charlie and John have pointed out, especially when you deal with SMS and MMS, you're dealing with the whole radio core uh, doing processing of those PDUs and such, and, and maybe even the network, um, in which case there's no, there's nothing quite like a, having a physical device on a real network. How about um, 
your tool chain. What do you guys use in your tool chain? We'll just start uh, with uh, Charlie. Um, I, so I used to use, for, for iPhone, I used to use some cross-compilers, some generic ones. Um, but now I just use the one that you get from Apple. It's, it's the best one. It's, you know, they actually build stuff with it. Um, for Android, I just use the, a generic cross-compiler, too. Vincenzo? Uh, well, basically, I kind of use Haida and uh, Bindip for most of the work I'm doing for iPhone and also for uh, for Android too. And yes, a uh, generic cross compiler for Android and the Apple compiler for iPhone uh, because I had some sort of strange problem with the the iPhone that team uh, cross compiler, but. Um, yeah, I know it could sound like a sales pitch, but uh, speaking of the emulator stuff, uh, I, I kind of uh, try to use the emulator as much as I can. And then there's a nice feature in Bindiff with uh, which lets you to lets you uh, diffing to to binaries of different architectures, and uh, this is pretty cool. So, so I'm kind of, of a fan of emulators, and yeah. Sorry about that. No, no problem. So yeah, well, well basically, there's nothing uh, like exotic in my tool chain. The pretty simple stuff. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. What do you guys use, Alex? Uh, for testing Android stuff at the at the system layer, most of the standard Linux stuff works. Um, IDA and IDA uh, uh, debugger works fine. Um, with ARM code, GDB works fine, and you can do remote GDB to uh, run GDB server and remotely debug. Um, for the Java level stuff, it's not actually real Java, so standard Java bytecode decompilers don't work. Um, we, we've written a couple of tools, and actually, here's a plug. My uh, partner, Jesse Burns, will be releasing some Android security tools um, this summer for testing applications. But what we're interested in mostly at that side is like IPC um, security stuff, and there, you need to write custom tools to look up that, those things. Uh, Aaron points out that emulators are really just simulators, and uh, you know they're not the actual device. But that that's kind of self-evident. Well, I, uh, like Charlie said, they're different. Like the iPhone one actually runs on the x86. You know, they compile the object code and x86 object code, the Objective C object code. Uh, Android is actually Quemu running an emulated ARM. So although the devices are emulated differently, aren't the actual radio interface and the, the real Wi-Fi chip and such? Um, it's much closer to being realistic than, than the iPhone. And so, uh, 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 Mahmoud uh, has a question: Are uh, are there any phone simulators for the PC, or do you run them in a special VM session? Uh, how do you typically use them? Um, the iPhone one runs on Macs on OS ten. Um, I think Intel only. Um, Android runs on Linux or OS ten on Intel chips. Um, the J two ME runs on on Windows and a bunch of other platforms. BlackBerry has ones that run on Windows. And you'd be able to emulate all that in different VMs if you wanted. Right, if you wanted to, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you probably, if you want to do all of them, you have to own a Mac and then have a virtual machine of Windows and a virtual machine of Linux, and then you're probably set. Wait, what do you need Linux for, Alex? Um, maybe the, maybe if you want to do Android the, the right way and not have to hack it up so it works in OS ten. There's a there's a Windows. Uh, I thought it worked in Windows, but maybe I'm crazy. Uh, 
<laughs> I'd be careful. I'd be careful calling him crazy. Pythons are going to come for you. Yeah. Hey, what about uh, open Linux uh, phones? There was a lot of talk in 2005, 2006, Aaron points out, about uh, open MoCo uh, and uh, the mobile Linux initiative. Is any of that stuff, I mean, have you guys even seen any of that? Nope. I'll take it by the silence of the panel that uh, open MoCo has not made it far enough along to get their visibility. Well, remember the gatekeepers here are the carriers. So um, if, you, if you think that the, the only, you know, Symbian and Android are the only open source OSs out there and are widely distributed, and it took the power of Nokia and Google um, to, to push those through on the carriers, I'm not sure a little Linux group is going to be able to do that. Although Intel now is pushing uh, their own version. So it's kind of a corporate-to-corporate -corporate conversation to get a VP or a senior VP at a at a major carrier to take a risk on an open source OS. We have a comment um, uh, from Kerry who says that the most notorious security issue that he's been seeing is users unknowingly syncing data, calendar, and mail while using devices such as Google Tools or Yahoo Mobile, uh, and then having the data end up being visible publicly. Any opinion on how to potentially reduce that, or is it just uh, user education? You should be aware of the services that you're implementing, obviously, and then that's just up to the to the application developers, whether it be Google or Yahoo, to you know take those use cases into into account when developing the software and making it. So that's not something that a, you know a user can can have happen to them without at least being made aware of it. I couldn't imagine a scenario where your address book or your pictures are unknowingly just being published to a to an open area without some kind of uh, indication of, of, of what's happening in the account that you're syncing with. And that also goes back to the, I mean, you could just as easily lose that data if your device is stolen. Um, it's just that it's visible to a wider audience if it you know, goes up on an indexable Right, I mean, the, the example would be maybe interfacing with like a Flickr API and it's, it's uploading to your public Flickr feed and you're not, oh, you, know, you don't realize that that's happening, for example. Uh, this question, uh, we're going to go to, just, we'll just kill off some questions here, and then uh, we'll do one final round of observations before we call it a day. Um, let's see. Uh, is automated malware going to survive with operators usually utilizing IPv6 addressing? Uh, and it, I would say, of course, it would survive. I mean, IPv6 is just going to be the transport to get the, the malware to the device. Right. I guess the, the question is because you can't just randomly guess IP addresses, it'll be too big. But I think the answer is the malware can just read your address book and, and figure out where to go and, and that sort of thing. So. And again, like we've been talking about, we're not just talking about IP to IP. Mobile malware is going to be over SMS, MMS, PDUs, um, and via like the back end push notification connections and stuff. There's a lot of other ways to address these devices other than by IP address. Um, we have a couple questions aggregated about backing up data, backing up whole devices. Um, is it possible to take a whole image of a device and restore it, or is it just piecemeal, like syncing your uh, contacts or backing your memory? Um, I know on the Symbian, the best thing I can do is I do a whole backup to an external memory device. That seems to uh, survive system reboots and completely restore my device. Um, and also, what uh, backup strategies do people employ? Do you guys just sync? Do you guys do full backup? 
I take a, for example, I take a backup of my on a micro SD and I just file it away in my fireproof filing cabinet. And it's always like a month old. But if something blows up, I can buy an identical phone and at least and completely restore my device. I think the the biggest thing you need to look at is backing up kind of the whole device applications included or the data. And those are that's kind of the line I would draw. Uh, there there are ways by which you can image a device, but it's it's more arduous. You need to do it with a, usually with an actual physical cable, just because of the, the size of uh, the data that you're you're backing up. Syncing the data can, from a user experience, experience standpoint, be almost the same. Whereas maybe your applications you may or may not be backed up because of DRM issues and there's a whole host of other things. But all other data, where let's say your your device was killed or you needed to deal with data backup and restore, you could restore. The, the entirety of the device, and basically, to, to, from a user's perspective, an image of the device, if you will. What do you guys do, Alex? Um, for the most part, our people are on BlackBerry, so everything's stored on the BlackBerry server, and there shouldn't be much in the way of data um, locally on the phone. Um, so, you know, keeping it in the cloud, I think, is going to be the model going forward, um, and then it's going to be up to the different manufacturers with the app stores, whether or not they're going to allow multiple uh, downloads. But I think it's, it's an appropriate thing that if somebody reactivates the phone with the same user credentials, if you're on the iPhone or Android, that you should be able to download the same apps. Have you ever had to do a remote kill of a device? That, you know, say one of your uh, employees left in the back of a seat pocket? Uh, we have done remote kills, and it works pretty well. Uh, oh. Well, the BlackBerry, one of the nice things is if you turn up all the security, um, then... You know, the data is protected at rest, and it has to call home to get a key off the device to, to decrypt some of it. Um, and that's probably that's the best way you can run um, Blackberries. And then so if it's off and dead in a seat pocket, uh, you're probably okay. I like just a remote kill. It's kind of fun to watch it to do it yourself and see how long it takes. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, how long does it take? Well, it takes it's, – it's very, very quick um, if you're on the network for it actually to start, but – um, the remote kill takes can take like an hour, hour and a half for it to overwrite every flash cell, um, which is why also encrypting the data is very important because if, if a bad guy steals your phone, all of a sudden they see the, I'm deleting all the data, please give me 59 minutes before you try to download it. Exactly, or, they just pull the battery. Right, so that's why it's important to encrypt it all and then have a single key that decrypts all of it and then you just wipe that key first and even if you don't get to the rest of it, it doesn't really matter. It should be inaccessible. That being said, again, the BlackBerry I think is the only device that does that. That way, it's yeah. like a BlackBerry ad. I feel really. No, well, I know. Well, me too. I, I was expecting to have kind of a more balanced security spectrum of devices, but it really is BlackBerry and then everybody else, which is not how you think the market would pan out. I guess. Well, the the difference is everybody else pretty much uses Exchange ActiveSync, right? So they're restricted to the security things that are built into that protocol. Whereas BlackBerry rolls their own protocol. They have the you know they put machines on the networks of the different. Um, carriers, uh, they have a, a very, they're able to get people to buy and install servers inside their enterprises. Um, and so they have a lot more control over the entire mail stack and therefore the things they can push, where if, if you're the iPhone and you're Emily and Exchange ActiveSync, you can only do the things Exchange ActiveSync allows you to do. So it would be interesting to see if in Exchange 2010 or further on, Microsoft puts some of this stuff in there and then allows Exchange ActiveSync licensees to, to implement it, because then maybe everybody else will catch up. Um, but until, you know, if you don't own the server side, you can't do arbitrary policy. And I think that just underscores also the the increasing complexity of a cross-platform environment. So if you run Bez and have a BlackBerry deployment, but then have, let's say, an office in Europe with, no, with Nokia and Symbian and iPhones, how do you deal with that, right? 
Well, and it, it gets complicated. We're not even going to go there about employee-owned devices versus company-owned devices and who owns what data. And, oh, that gets to be a nightmare. <laughs> but that's mostly can be addressed through policy. Yeah, and there is OMADM, which is supposed to be the way that everybody at BlackBerry that you can get your policy. Um, but that's not directly tied into how you do mail, so it doesn't really affect the, you know, how you encrypt your mail. Has anybody played? I, I know uh, certain carriers in Europe and uh, Canada, you can get, and even on, like, say, my Nokia E90, there's a built-in BlackBerry stack on the device, and you just need to download the software, and then it turns your Nokia into a BlackBerry, as far as email is concerned. Has anybody played with that stuff? Nope. I'd be curious on, on how well that's implemented from a security standpoint. That seems like a crazy thing for BlackBerry to allow. Well, I mean, it comes from BlackBerry, and you talk to BlackBerry, and they'll tell you which carriers have their approved BlackBerry stack stuff on it. And, and it has to be supported in the phone device. It's not just software. It works with a part of the phone OS. I guess everybody's going to buy Rimstock after listening to this. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize it's been around for a while, and so I uh, I wanted to get it and use it on AT&T, but uh, AT&T hasn't licensed it, so I had to download something from an English-speaking European country and load it onto my phone uh, to try to play around with it. Okay, guys. Well, we're kind of coming to the end of the uh, we're coming to the end, so let's pop up our final uh, slide there and let's uh, thank everybody for participating. What we're going to do is we make this roundtable available online in audio form. And you can either go back to On24. We'll have a link on the Black Hat webcast page where you can download it pretty much immediately, or in the next couple of days, early next week, we'll have it in an MP3 format that you can download, just like all of our previous webinars. And it's free for uh, educational, non-commercial uses, so share it with your friends, spread it around, do whatever you want with it. And I also want to take this time to announce our winner... David Bross from Microsoft. If you're uh, on here listening, you are the lucky winner. And if you're not, uh, we'll be contacting you in the next day or so to let you know that you're a winner. Also, for those of you who want to get more involved, if this uh, weekly webinar or monthly webinar is not enough for you guys, you want to participate more with us, go ahead, check out our uh, – we have a Twitter feed. We've got a Facebook feed. Our LinkedIn group is nearing almost 4,000 people. And, uh, and we're working on a Black Hat social site, which should be magically materializing, hopefully in the next couple of months, uh, specifically targeted toward uh, security researchers. With that said, do we have the voice from on above? Is Steve Paul or somebody going to shut this down? Darrington? Uh, yes. Thanks, everybody, for attending, and thanks to all of our, our speakers for being involved. Uh, we've got... Uh, feedback form that should be showing up in front of you that we'd like you to fill out. Uh, your participation in the survey allows us to better serve you, so if you'd like to follow the link and, and fill that out, we'd be greatly appreciative. Uh, also, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention on June 18th will be our webcast number 11. What's the topic? The topic is it's a sneak preview of the USA show, uh, and it also... There, we also have a special offer going on with that where uh, registrants to that webcast receive a code for $250 off Black Hat USA registration. And there will be a link that comes up for that in just a moment. So register for the next one. 
and get a discount for the summer show. Is that correct? That's correct. That is correct. Thank you for attending today's Mobility and Security webcast brought to you by Black Hat and United Business Media LLC. Uh, shortly after this live event, as Jeff mentioned, you'll be able to access this presentation on demand. This webcast is copyright 2009 by United Business Media LLC. Uh, we are solely responsible for the content, and the individual speakers are solely responsible for their content and their opinions. On behalf of our guest, Jeff Moss of Black Hat, and our group of expert presenters, thank you for your time. Have a great day.